This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversations. There is a surprising amount of enthusiasm in New Delhi today to negotiate and finalize new free trade agreements. When Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, the government said it was going to review India's existing free trade agreements, sending out the message that the Modi government was not in favor of free trade agreements. This is now changing. Earlier this month, on the 2nd of April, India and Australia signed an interim economic cooperation and trade agreement. Both sides now plan to conclude negotiations on a full trade agreement by the end of this year. The deal removes tariffs on more than 85% of Australian goods to India and 96% of goods exported from India to Australia. It sets an ambitious goal to double bilateral trade between the two countries in five years. The India-Australia Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement comes in the immediate wake of the Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement between India and the United Arab Emirates signed earlier in February this year. The agreement with the UAE aims to boost merchandise trade between the two countries to $100 billion by 2030. The speed at which India has signed the two back-to-back free trade agreements might come as a welcome surprise after India's decades-long reticence towards free trade agreements and joining regional economic groupings. The last significant FTA was signed was with Japan in 2011. After that, India tried to negotiate a trade agreement with the United States during the Trump administration, but it failed to materialize. During Trump White House, India's GSP benefits were revoked and high tariff duties were imposed on India's steel and aluminium exports. It seemed that India, too, was engaged in a trade war with the United States, even as the United States was engaged in a trade war with China. Since then, the Biden administration has so far shown little interest to negotiate an FTA with India. India's Minister of Commerce and Industries, Piyush Goyal, said so in a meeting with exporters last year when he said that, and I quote, the U.S. as of now has kind of indicated that India that they are not looking for new trade agreements." Speaking of ongoing trade negotiations, he also remarked that, and I quote, Australia is first on the list, the UK, and if the UAE happens, the pact with GCC will also be expedited, unquote. Now, free trade agreements with UAE and Australia have materialized, and negotiations with the UK are ongoing. After signing the interim agreement with Australia, India's Minister of Commerce and Industry said that India is working on FTAs with the UK, Canada, Israel, Gulf Cooperation Council, which is GCC, and the European Union. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is slated to visit India later this month, and one can hope for significant progress in the India-UK FTA negotiations. Addressing the first India-UK Strategic Futures Dialogue last month, India's outgoing Foreign Secretary Harshwadin Srinkla said, that both sides are committed to delivering a comprehensive and balanced FTA by the end of this year 
along with an interim deal for early gains. Trade negotiations with the European Union, which halted in 2013, are also set to resume. According to EU officials, India wants to conclude the deal at the earliest, although very ambitious. If achieved, an FTA between India and the EU could be a game changer. India's approach to free trade agreements has undergone a total transformation. Both the pressure of post-pandemic economic recovery and the geoeconomics of the Indo-Pacific demand that if India has to play a major role in the region, safeguard its interests and balance China economically and militarily, it needs strong economic growth and greater trade and commerce with the rest of the world. To discuss India's approach to free trade agreements, analyze the significance of India's free trade agreements with Australia and the UAE, and understand the significance of the ongoing negotiations with other countries, I have with me Ambassador Dr. Mohan Kumar. He is a former Indian diplomat. He was India's lead negotiator, first at the GATT and then at the WTO, in crucial areas such as intellectual property rights, services, dispute settlement, rules and technical barriers to trade. He is the author of the book, Negotiation Dynamics of the WTO and Insider's Account. He is currently the Dean of the School of International Affairs and Global Initiatives at the OP Jindal University. Ambassador Mohan Kumar, welcome to the National Security Conversation. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Ambassador, this seems to be the season of FTAs, but let's talk about the Australia deal first. How significant is the Australia-India Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement signed earlier this month? What impact, in your opinion, this will have on the economic ties between India and Australia? So, uh, um, I think one of the things that is happening is that we have strategic partnerships with several countries. But the trade partnership is slow to mm. catch on. So, the trade partnership with some countries always lags behind the strategic partnership. So, if you take the Quad, we have uh, uh, United States, Japan, India, Australia. I like it that not only has the strategic partnership with Australia leapfrogged, but now the trade partnership is catching up. So, I would like to situate it in the context of Quad where I think we are trying to find convergence. And if we finish the FTA with Australia, we would have an FTA with Japan and we would have an FTA with Australia in the Quad. United States is the only outlier, but then, you know, we can talk about mm. the United mm. States. There is no traction in the United States for FTAs. So, I think in that sense, I would say that um, I would not evaluate the FTA with Australia in dollar terms. Right. I would evaluate it in strategic terms and say that it's important. You know, that's a very interesting comparison that you're making. Strategic partnership versus, or uh, let's say, versus uh, economic partnership. Would you then say that a strategic partnership without a proper economic partnership is probably not going to work in the longer run? Absolutely. I mean, I've been crying myself hoarse, you know that that without a proper, full-fledged, a full-spectrum trade partnership, you just don't have the ballast mm. to mm. kind of push a strategic partnership forward. I mean, again, I don't want to keep going back to the US. One of the weak areas that we have with US is the trade partnership. That is the weakest link. But I will not go down there. We, we can maybe discuss it later. Right. So, as far as Australia is concerned, what I like is 
In fact, what I like about what India is doing, and we can talk about it later, is that each and every one of the FTAs that the Commerce Ministry is doing is basically, in my view, the trade relationship is catching up with the strategic partnership that we have with those countries. So, I, I like what I'm seeing in right. that sense. But until recently, there was a certain amount of reticence uh, that characterized India's sort of uh, policy towards free trade agreements or even regional economic partnerships for that matter. India walked, up, uh, walked out of RCEP negotiations not too long ago. Um, what, in your opinion, sort of prompted India to walk out of the RCEP uh, agreement? Um, do you think, in your personal opinion, do you think these are legitimate concerns that India had at the time of uh, uh, walking, making the decision to walk out? Yes, I think we had legitimate concerns. And if you ask me what are the reasons for walking out of RCEP, I'll give you three reasons. China, China, China. Hmm. It's as simple as that. We tried very hard to tell our partners in RCEP that we want differential tariffs. That is one set of tariffs which will be applicable for all other countries, countries other than China and one set of tariffs for China, because very frankly, um, let's not uh, make any bones about it. Uh, we were worried about the competitive strength that our products and services and our market may have vis-a-vis -vis China. Secondly, we wanted safeguards against Chinese imports. As you know, the WTO concept of safeguards is that if you have an import surge and if it is established over a period of time, then the country which suffers that import surge is then allowed to impose duties to arrest the imports. That was not agreeable. So, I think uh, I would say basically there were a couple of other reasons as well. I don't think we got satisfaction in services from RCEP partners and this I'm talking country of… Country of origin? Was that a problem? No, uh, country of origin was an issue, you're right. But when I talk of services, I'm talking of movement of professionals, right, visas. Right. But as you rightly say, country of origin as well. So, there was the issue of what is known as in trade terms as circumvention. That is Chinese goods yeah. coming to India via a third country. So, that is circumvention classic. And rules of origin are, are a big issue. How much proportion of transformation should you see in a product? before you consider it as a product from Malaysia or Singapore. If, what if the Chinese component was 55%? Would you still consider it an Indonesian product? No. For us, no. Because we would like substantial transformation of the product to have taken place in Indonesia before we consider it an Indonesian product. So, I think you had issues of those. So, on the whole, to answer your question, why we weren't party to RCEP and other FTAs, I would say two things. One, uh, we were looking at economies which also competed in the same areas as we did. Garments, pharmaceutical products, textiles, tea, coffee, uh, buffalo meat, etc. Second, we faced important non-tariff barriers in these, in these uh, markets, including ASEAN. And we tried to tell them that we should have an agreement on non-tariff barriers and that was turned down. So, because when you talk of an FTA these days, RCEP will tell you, we just want Indian tariffs to come down. That is their interest. Right. They are not worried about the non-tariff barriers faced by Indian exports to their markets. But there are two questions, Ambassador Mongumar. One is the whole China question. Now, with China is there, you can't ignore China. $125 billion, that's your 
trade um, in the wake of the uh, COVID pandemic and in the wake of uh, the standoff on the line of actual control. So China is not going anywhere. India will have to trade with the Chinese and that's that's what is happening now. So if, 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 the, if the trade with China is a reality, why not through RCEP, question number one. And secondly, the whole uh, competitiveness uh, issue. You trade with any country, be it Australia, be it uh, UK, and, and, and the Prime Minister is coming, we may actually have an FTA with the United Kingdom or any other country. Competitiveness, competitiveness will be an issue. So why are we shying away that in the arts of uh, construct? So as far as China is concerned, I would like to divide our trade with China into strategic trade and non-strategic trade. Mm. So let me give you an example. If you are buying buttons for shirts, zippers for pants and undergarments from China, very frankly, I don't care. You can buy $150 billion, I don't care. But if you're going to be dependent on China for what is known as active pharmaceutical ingredients, which go into making of your pharmaceutical generic drugs, that's a problem. If 70% of your active pharmaceutical ingredients come from China, that is strategic. If 70% of your photovoltaic cells for solar panels come from China, it's a problem. Those are the areas where we would like to reduce dependence on China trade. So don't go by the global figure is what I'm saying. What you have to see, and I think RAS is looking at it very closely and looking at this composition of the $150 billion, that's what you have to do. Shoes, socks, undergarments, buttons, zippers. It's fine. If they're the most competitive, let's get it from there. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with that because that doesn't threaten India in a strategic sort of way. But active pharmaceutical ingredients, photovoltaic cells, semiconductors, rare earths, problem. We need to diversify. That's sure. all I'm saying. Sure. As far as the other question you asked about why we got out of these FTAs in terms of competitiveness, and I agree with you that competitiveness doesn't change, whether you talk of Australia, whether you talk of... Um, Indonesia or whether you talk of the EU, having said that, competitiveness with regard to EU will be in different products because if you take garments, there is no, it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that we are competitive in garments vis-a-vis -vis the EU, exactly. but we are not competitive in garments vis-a-vis -vis China. We are not competitive in garments vis-a-vis -vis Vietnam. We are not competitive in garments vis-a-vis -vis even Malaysia. So that is the distinction I'm making. And that is why I very much like the FTA we have concluded with United Arab Emirates. This is fantastic because 98% of our exports have been covered. Normally, if you ask a trade expert like me, FTAs are evaluated on how much tariff coverage you do. So if India has 11,500 tariff lines, if 9,000 lines are covered in the FTA, you say, okay, it's a good FTA. But this is a very, very clever way of doing it. What the India UAE FTA does, it doesn't talk of the tariff lines. What the Commerce Ministry is saying, and I completely agree with that assessment, 98% of your exports are getting preferential treatment. Hmm. So you stand to gain. 
I think this is an excellent uh, metric as far as I'm Going concerned. back to uh, the FTA with UAE that you mentioned, it also has a provision for more visas, golden visas, etc. for Indians. Now, would you consider uh, that as, um, you know, addressing India's concerns about um, services? Um, uh, one of the reasons why India has problems with FTAs is that, uh, you know, the the ability of the Indian workers uh, to move to other countries, be it uh, uh, developed countries or say um, Southeast Asian countries, they are not quite understanding of this issue. So, do you think this was addressed by the India-UAE FTA or and, and how else can we address this in some of the other uh, negotiations that are undergoing? So, you need to make a distinction between the services agreement of the WTO, right. which talks of movement of professionals right. and immigration. Ah. So, the FTAs do not cover permanent immigration. Mm -hmm. No FTA will cover permanent immigration. What FTAs cover is short-term movement of professionals to execute a project and then come back. So, that is where we were having problems with many, many countries. And that is known as mode 4 of the services agreement. That is what we are trying to address through the FTAs. Are there, are there any examples where countries have such agreements of their personnel moving for a short period of time and then coming back? Oh, absolutely. All countries are expected to take some commitments in mode 4 of the services agreement. So, we are entirely within our rights in asking for such movement. The movement of these professionals are linked to the execution of the project. So, if Wipro gets a project in UAE, and Wipro has to execute the project in six months. Wipro will take 25,000 engineers from India, take them to UAE, execute the project, and Wipro will undertake that they will come back mm -hmm. after executing the project. Mm -hmm. So, that is the issue that is sought to be addressed through mode 4. Permanent immigration is not covered by free trade agreements. So, what is, I'm sorry to push this point again and again, but what is the Indian demand that is not accepted by other countries. India says that we want to send these professions for a short period of time. Are the other countries unwilling to accept that? And that's one of the reasons why India has a problem with some of these FTAs. So, so two problems we have been facing, and this is regardless of whether it is East or West, both countries to the East and West. One, the delays that we face in terms of getting visas. Right. If I want visas for 20,000 or 15,000 professionals, they have to be done on time. Otherwise, Wipro cannot execute the project in six months. If you're going to take six months giving me a visa, I can't go. That's first. The second issue that is being faced by India is that we are not even allowed to win the project sometimes because of this issue of movement of professionals. Hmm. So, we lose contracts because of this problem. Hmm. Because you're not able to meet it in time, it's a vicious uh, circle and then you end up being uncompetitive and you can't meet uh, the deadlines. So, I think uh, it, is, it is an issue that our partners understand very well. The fear from the partner's side is that it is very difficult to monitor this. How do you ensure these people go back? Um, I don't think I'm betraying any secret when I say that Indians are considered a high-risk immigration mm -hmm. for most countries in the West mm -hmm. and maybe even countries in the, in the ASEAN. So, in that sense, uh, that is why India signs now what is known as labor mobility and partnership agreements. We have signed one with UK, by the way. Interesting. Uh, and that is the way to go. 
You need to have a labor mobility partnership agreement by which both countries decide to cooperate and make sure there is no illegal migration. And if there is, that will be deported back to the country of origin. Understood. You know, going notwithstanding some of the substantive issues that you pointed out uh, in terms of India's negotiation of FTS with other countries, there seems to be today a significant change in India's uh, approach to FTAs after the pandemic. Uh, we, as you mentioned, there was the India-UAE Comprehensive Economic Part uh, Agreement in February. Now, the one with um, uh, the Australians and the several more are uh, under negotiations. What has brought about this change? If the substantive issues remain unaddressed in many ways, there still seems to be enthusiasm in New Delhi. What explains that? So that's an excellent question. Uh, I'd like to thank you for it because I do want to explain that as well. There is absolutely no question there has been a 360 degree change. Exactly. I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to be able to say that because post RCEP, when we walked out end of 2019, a lot of ministers and the government said FTAs is not the only way to go forward. We will do other things mm. is what I was hearing. This was during the entire 2020. Come end 2021, suddenly I find we have announced that we are going to have FTAs with UAE, Australia, UK, EU, Israel, Canada, and then GCC. I said, good God. I said, and I was raising the question at that time, do we have the manpower resources to do this? Yeah. That was my worry. I was thrilled, by the way. As a trade uh, policy wonk, I was thrilled, but I was wondering, is this again rhetoric? But I think two things have changed and that's what I want to say. One is that we have decided that large mega free trade agreements are not for India. We've decided. If you Like the RCEP. Absolutely. If you have decided you're not going to be part of RCEP, I don't see how you can be part of CPTPP. You know, this comprehensive Pacific, Trans-Pacific Partnership, comprehensive progressive, yeah, sorry. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a ridiculous <laughs> acronym. But anyway, trade diplomats are good at it. So CPTPP, we will never join. But I think we have cleverly decided, let's have free trade agreements with individual countries, mm. tailor-made yeah. to suit our exports. I think it's clever because if you have to sign an agreement with RCEP, you cannot tailor make it for India's requirements. You have to tailor make it for the 11, 12 countries who are part of RCEP. This way, if I don't want to grant a concession on dairy milk powder with Australia, I don't. If I don't want to have a concession on rice with UAE, I don't. I only take care of whatever products I can. And sometimes we even talk of an early uh, harvest so that we leave the final agreement for later in order to convince public opinion that, listen, we need to have Australian dairy milk powder or Australian cheese in the Indian market. It takes time to convince Amul and others that, listen, a competition is not a bad thing. It gives consumers the choice, etc., etc. So I actually, to be honest, find the present strategy much more workable. You tailor make your requirements right. in accordance with the countries. You're. The second reason is, and which I think your viewers should know, the Indian GDP is about 2.8 trillion. Yeah. When I when I when I checked last, so 50, 45 to 50 percent is foreign trade. 
So you can keep saying, I don't want to have FTAs. You simply can't help it. If your dream is to become a 5 trillion economy and a 10 trillion economy, I'm talking 50% of your GDP. That nation you world. have to export and import. I think there has been a recognition now that, listen, you can have a domestic market that's growing, you know, the demand, demography, etc. But at the end of the day, the Indian economy is hugely integrated with the global economy. You can't go back in time. You are integrated already. And 50% of your GDP growth, if it's got to happen, it's got to happen because of foreign I wonder trade. why it took the government seven years in office to recognize that. I mean, when Modi came to power in 2014, it was all about doing business with India. India is a business-friendly country. And yet, at the same time, the government said, we are going to review all the existing FTAs and did not engage, enter into any FTA for about six to seven years. Now, we are talking about Atmanirabhar Bharat on the one hand and on the other hand, doing exactly the opposite in some ways. In some ways, yes. No, I think... Um, what has, if you ask me again, why this change? Because there's no, there's no, you're, you're denying, part of the government, I mean. there is no denying the fact that there is a change. I think two things may be. One, we gave RCEP a shot. Hmm. And we tried to, you know, we, we were also concerned about the signals that we would send if we withdrew from RCEP. I remember those discussions in the government and they were very intense discussions. A lot of people saying, listen, what kind of signals are you sending? if you walk out of the largest FTA. So that is one. The second, I would say, is that I think somewhere the pandemic yeah. created a crisis. And I'm glad, uh, as, as an American politician said, never allow a crisis to go waste. So I think we've, we've kind of seized the bull by the horns and said, OK, let's try this out. But I have to tell you, frankly, this is a complete opposite of Act East. Except Australia, all your FTAs are to the West. Everything that you are negotiating will begin with EU, UK, GCC, UAE, Israel, Canada. It's all to the West of India. Whereas before, all your FTAs were to the East of India. What are the existing FTAs that India has got? ASEAN, Japan, South Korea. Sri Lanka. All your FTAs are to the east of India. And that was supposed to be the backbone of Act East policy. I'm afraid we are now moving from Act East to completely acting West. And, and the reason I want to tell you my interpretation, the products and services, the lack of competitiveness in India will matter less in the Western markets than in the Eastern markets. That's the only explanation I can think of. What are your exports? Your exports are generic pharmaceutical drugs. That's right. If you get permission from Brussels and Washington, your generic drugs can be exported. Buffalo meat, you need to have SPS standards, food grains, garments, textile. Do you see a shirt being made in Poland? Forget about, forget about uh, France and Germany. Do you see a shirt being made in Poland which is less uh, expensive than the shirt made in India? Not happening. No. So, it's fine. I think we've realized a little bit late, you're right, but I think it's, it's a, quite, a, quite a remarkable turnaround. And, and mind you, all this at a time when we don't even have a foreign trade policy. We have a foreign trade policy which is five years old, which has been extended by every six months because of the pandemic.
that's we, simply we, we also don't have a national security policy so. that, that i don't know <laughs> but i am only talking of foreign trade policy so, so you mentioned about uh, southeast asia um, and asean you know india has been attempting to intensify its economic ties with the southeast asia first through the lookish policy and now through the actish policy and yet india's uh, trade with asean has stagnated at around 80 billion dollars for the period between 2014 and 2021 whereas china's uh, trade almost doubled from US 2.35 uh, billion uh, to in 2010 uh, to about 685 billion dollars in 2020. What are the reasons why India is unable to sort of uh, improve its economic footprint in the um, in, in the in Southeast Asian region compared to say um, the Chinese for that matter? I mean, RCEP, of course, you explained why India cannot be part of that, but even otherwise, you're looking at such disparity. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is to identify the problem. As you rightly said, there is a problem. Uh, we have an FTA with ASEAN. The fact that it hasn't worked has led us to call for a review. So at present, there is a very detailed review of the ASEAN India FTA on both sides. So what are we reviewing? The first problem that we want to resolve is that our imports are rising at a much faster rate than our exports to ASEAN. So the trade deficit between ASEAN and India is widening. We want to put an end to it. The only way we can put an end to it if you see an exponential increase in your exports. Right. Why are Indian exports not increasing to ASEAN? One is a obviously competitiveness. Right. Let's be honest. That is an issue. Second, non-tariff barriers, which I talked about. You know, if you if you are selling, it's very interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know about the ASEAN, but take the South Korean market. Children's clothes from India, right? Children's garments mm -hmm. cannot be very easily sold in South Korea because there is a testing requirement in South Korea that wants to make sure that a child's garment doesn't catch fire easily. Wow. Now, this is something... Uh, that is completely unheard of in India. <laughs> right. You know, you tell a child not to go near the fire. That's what we, that is our way of doing it. Their way of doing it is to make sure the clothes don't catch fire easily. I mean, so the, the Indian garment exporters are have not having such an easy time ex, uh, exporting to the East. So there are non-tariff barriers. And if you take pharma products, I have to tell you our ASEAN friends, and we have taken it up again and again with them. Taking six months to give a marketing approval for a drug from India is as good as killing it. You cannot take six months these yeah, days. Yeah. The, the importer is just going to go to another supplier. Exactly. Why would he wait six months to get an ordinary paracetamol tablet, what you call Dupo or uh -huh. whatever you call it uh -huh. here? You know, why would you wait six months? Because it takes too long. So we've been taking this up with ASEAN. So I would say a combination of two or three factors. Competitiveness, I'm willing to accept that there are more competitive exporters there. And by the way, they have also deepened their trade cooperation with China. I was coming to that. So Why, our yeah. exports face higher tariffs in the ASEAN market than Chinese. So if you're trying to export a shirt from India to ASEAN and you're exporting the same shirt from China to ASEAN, we will attract, hypothetically, um, but I'm not wrong, still 6 or 7% duty, they get it 0%. Why? I mean, why, because why? they have an FTA which is much deeper than ours. So, the, and, and I thought, 
I used to tell the hosiery manufacturers in the south, Tirupur, uh -huh. and I told them, what is 5%? They said, sir, 5% is a world of difference. You can, it's, it's, it's the, it is the difference between getting a contract for Gap and M Marks and Spencer and not getting it. <laughs> Again, that is the reason why Bangladesh beats us hollow. Bangladesh is able to export garments at 0% duty. We have about 6 to 7% duty in EU because they are a least developed country. Oh, yeah, yes, LDC. So, but the point I'm making is most people don't appreciate. They keep saying India is uncompetitive. But China is a good example. I think we, we probably should try and see what China is doing. Uh, China's, get du a China's export duties in the ASEAN market are significantly lower than Indian exports, without a doubt. You know, I'm, I'm also looking at the data for India's trade with South Asia. Forget about Southeast Asia, that is in some ways China's backyard. In our own sort of neighborhood, our trade with the neighborhood is actually lagging behind that of China. Um, over time, China has actually overtaken India. Um, I mean, this is something that's, that completely beats me. What explains that? This is India's neighborhood, India's region. India has a India has had a level playing field in that region for since independence. Only in the last 10 years, 15 years, China has probably overtaken India there. What has led to this situation where India is lagging behind China in its own neighborhood? So I think this is an area I was talking to the Indian Foreign Service officer trainees yesterday, right. and I was making this point. We were talking of the neighborhood policy. One thing that we have to acknowledge is a failure on our part as the biggest economy in South Asia to promote regional trade integration. You can't blame it on others. You can't. You can't. It is, it, it is completely India's responsibility to push for trade and economic integration by being magnanimous, which I'm afraid in the past we haven't, by being non-reciprocal, which I am afraid we haven't, and by setting aside politics. That is, allow good economics to trump bad politics. We haven't done that. And this has been the bane of South Asian region. In all fairness, the last point about allowing good economics to trump bad politics is not just confined to India. I think our neighbors are equally, equally guilty. But I would still say as the biggest economic actor in South Asia, it was incumbent on India to drive this. So I'll give you an example. When I was Joint Secretary Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, uh, Bangladesh, we were trying to sign an FTA. Those days, I'm talking of 2006, 2007. Bangladesh very frankly said, we have only interest in garments, Hilsa fish, Jamdani saris and jute. So I said, fine, let's talk about it. So I don't want to blame people, but in 2006, I tried very hard to push the Commerce Ministry. What is the problem in allowing import of jute bags from Bangladesh at 0% duty? Can you tell me? But there are serious, the, the, the jute manufacturers of India simply protested. This yeah. is just, I'm saying something which is no secret. Right. The Commerce Ministry had a discussion with jute at the time and they said, no. We will not be able to face this competition if you allow them 0% duty. So, I would say in answer to your question that part of, part of it was lack of political will in the past where I think we should have called out the vested interest. If every time you negotiate a free trade agreement, if you're going to allow vested interests to 
hold you hostage, then you won't be able to negotiate at all. Right. And I feel particularly bad. Uh, it's okay to, to kind of play hardball with China. It's okay that your negotiations with EU failed after 13 rounds in 2013. It's not okay. I wish we had concluded it. But that is understandable. For me, what is not understandable is not giving Bangladesh what it wants. Because Bangladesh has a $10 billion trade with India. And that $10 billion is actually more than the bilateral trade that India has with France. Can you believe it? Think about it. A Bangladeshi tells me, in fact, he told me when I visited Dhaka that I get up in the morning, I use a toothbrush and a toothpaste made in India. After that, he says, my breakfast is cornflakes made in India. And he went on like this and said in the night when I sleep on the mattress, the mattress is made in India. What more do you want? So I was very impressed when a Bangladeshi told me that all the products are Indian. So when they ask for something, it is my contention that we should have been generous. We should have been non-reciprocal when it comes to bilateral trade in South Asia. And we should have been able to summon the political will to do it by calling out the vested interests. I understand right, right. that people in India, there are always interests who are going to say, no, don't yeah, yeah, allow yeah. competition. It's a big country, there will be always be interests. Yes, but you'll have to see the larger good of the country. Absolutely. I think this present strategy, I'm yeah. keeping my fingers crossed, it might just work. Because we are picking and choosing. In several ways, we are cherry-picking our partners. Yeah, yeah, true. And I think it's a clever strategy. It's not a bad strategy at all. You know, look, looking back at the uh, the bigger picture, uh, be it in RCEP, be it Southeast Asia, be it South Asia, China seems to be really increasing its economic grip uh, in, in the whole of Asian region. What is a potential answer from the Indian side? Is partnership with countries like Japan the answer? I was just looking at the data on Japan's influence in the region. Um, in 2019, for instance, Japan had invested about $259 billion in unfinished projects in Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam, compared to China's $157 billion. This is an economic powerhouse, and we have a lot going with the Japanese. I mean, the Japanese Prime Minister was here recently. So is Japan in some ways, because it is located in the region, um, an answer for India? to enhance its economic influence in the region, in your opinion? So, I think uh, that's uh, that's correct. Um, three strategies to tackle China, if you like. The first strategy is what you just hinted, which is diversification. So, we reduce dependence on China by going to partners like Japan, yeah. going to partners like Australia, going to partners like South Korea, which is a major economic partner of India now. So, diversification is one. The second is the production-linked incentive scheme that Government of India has got in areas like mobile phones and so on. And I think that's a good one because it reduces, again, dependence on Chinese imports. We've got something for uh, um, photovoltaic cells, solar panels. We've got a wonderful production-linked incentive scheme for active pharmaceutical ingredients. Because you don't need rocket technology to make anti uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients. We used to make this before, the Indian Drugs and Pharmaceuticals Limited. And somewhere along the way, we just gave it up. And last but not least, I would say that we must have a system by which we diversify our partners step by step. That is, don't stop trading with China because your exporters are hooked on to China for some things. That's fine. 
and I don't think we should be pig-headed about this. If they are getting, supposing you are a small-time exporter in Ghaziabad and you want to have an equipment, a capital equipment, and if the choice is between Siemens of Germany and uh, capital equipment from China, the Chinese one is likely to be one-third cheaper than the Siemens. So why call it strategic and why be foolhardy about this? I would say... But aren't, aren't there security concerns? Not if you are making shoes. If but you, if you are making 5G equipment, there is. If, absolutely. Telecom, energy, um, pharmaceuticals, yes. Mm -hmm. But not if the guy is making shoes and if he wants the equipment only from China. So I think we have to be smart about this. Right. I agree right. with you. I think uh, uh, you know, using a sledgehammer to deal with the Chinese issue will redound on us. It will rebound on us. So I think we have to be smart about this. And I think there is an appreciation now that um, non-strategic trade from China is fine. If, if that is right. how it's going to be. I would say even Chinese infrastructure, if they want to build a bridge or roads, why not? But if they're building a port uh, next to Kashmir, then you watch out. Yeah. Or ne yeah. uh, next to Mumbai, then it's different. Right. So I think right. you'll have to have a, right. you'll have to make a strategic assessment of China's trade and investment relationship. Ambassador Kumar, you, 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 you've been a diplomat, you are a, you're an academic, you're a writer, you've been a negotiator. Give us some big picture understanding for my for, for our audience, a big picture understanding of your assessment of India's trade policy in general. What are its major drawbacks and what are, what are some of its key strengths? Okay, so before that, um, and this is my final comments to you, the, the, the big picture one comment is that the world is moving away from MFN-driven WTO-regulated trade. Hmm. MFN-WTO hmm. is over, is over. All international trade is going to be preferential, resilient and strategic. And I'll explain what I mean by it. Preferential because countries are going to have FTAs, either bilateral or regional. If you take Vietnam, it's got an FTA with every single partner that it has got. It's, it is the only developing country which has signed an FTA with the European Union, Vietnam, which is going to make our exports to EU very difficult, which is why we are trying to sign an FTA with EU. Vietnam will be able to export to European Union at zero tariffs. As it is, we are not competitive. On top of it, if Vietnam exports at 0%, I don't see Indian goods going at all. So we have to get our act together. So the big picture is it's moving towards preferential. It is strategic, I explained to you. You know, if you're, if you're dealing yeah. with semiconductors, if you're dealing with active pharmaceutical ingredients, normal trade rules will not apply. Countries will make up their own minds. And lastly, I think trade is also going to be reciprocal. Right. It is not going to be non-reciprocal. So, if a country gives me access to my market, I will give it access. By the way, that is the very opposite of MFN. As you know, MFN means if I give you a concession, I have to make it available to all the MFN partners. I think that has changed. Indian trade policy strengths and weaknesses. The strength of Indian trade policy is that we open up our economy gradually and incrementally. By the way, that is a strength because the implications for India can be serious if we do, for example, what Brazil or Argentina did. The, your economy can go into a tailspin and that's not a good thing for India. 
you have to be incremental i agree secondly there are areas in india which are off limits agriculture the government tried i thought they were eminently sensible farm bills but this is democracy i don't want to get into the merits of it but you had to withdraw so some areas are going to be off limits sectors which are massive employment generators like the automobile sector i don't think we can allow a compact bmw to come to the market easily without tariffs because then your maruti suv will will be you have to pack it up let's be i'm putting it brutally which will you prefer you tell me if i bring down the bmw duties to 0% and you're selling a maruti for let us say even 8 lakhs and i'm able to sell a, get a, a bmw for 11 lakhs and he will tell me emi lelo what do you do what are you going to buy no i'm putting it bluntly yeah. this is what we have to oh, tell second hand vehicles second hand okay. used vehicles exactly so i think that's a second the weakness of indian trade policy for me is i think two or three things one we are slow to act second mm. we have a manpower problem in my humble opinion Trained yeah manpower, you yeah. need you need about 50 60 people who can understand wto who can who can negotiate i don't think a country of 1.4 well billion can be proud that there are six people eight people who are negotiating absolutely and last but not least i also believe that india has to have a real dialogue which has begun with all your chambers of commerce and industry get them on board read the right act to them when it is necessary and tell them that listen we can't carry on like this so i think that is happening but i think it should happen much more but on the whole uh, i would say that this has been a, a fantastic move by the government doing these ftas but i think we must also announce the foreign trade policy because that has been pending for a while now so come september hopefully we will see a new foreign trade policy fascinating insights wonderful conversation thank you so much ambassador kumar for coming on thank the show thank you so much mr jacob thank, thank you sir thank you for listening to this podcast if you like this podcast please rate and follow us for regular updates you can also follow our twitter handle nsc with hj or our facebook page national security conversations with happy mon jk